about the name. Originally the Chaitanya Bhagavad was called the Chaitanya Mongol. Mm-hmm. Right? Then it got changed to Chaitanya Bhagavad. It's a different style of uh, remembrance of narrative meditation on Chaitanya Mahaprabhu from Chaitanya Bhagavad and Chaitanya Charitamrita. An edition of it was published by Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur. Um, it's very um, poetic uh, work and uh, peculiar in some ways as well but we have great uh, regard for him it's an example of something I was talking about the other day that about some devotees say things, write things in certain ways that that um, may not be uh, fully embraced by the mainstream of Godi Orthodox, but their character is extraordinary. So we honor them, nonetheless. So it's the case with the Chaitanya Mangal and Lochandas Thakur. I don't want to say too much. But it's a big topic, at least when it comes to, comes to mind when you mention him. So, are there any other questions? Yes. Um, I would like to know more about the um, the kind of seven mothers we have, and uh, uh, one of those is the cow. Well, I really know more about you know that, and I would really love to to know about more about that <coughs> divine, let's say, food that would be in milk, you know, and uh, whatever the cows uh, uh, are for us, you know. Cows, cows, uh huh, cows. Well, uh, cows are very. Um, Extraordinary animal, and we did speak about this at some length <coughs> some nights ago when there was a question by a visiting um, person who is not very familiar with our teaching. And I pointed out then, I guess it's worth repeating that the um, that the uh, the cow and the bull they. Uh, represent a kind of a sandhyam. Sandhyam means like, how would you call it? Like Juncture. junction. A, uh, like dawn is a junction between the day and the night. 
and dusk is the junction again between the day and the night. So the junction, this uh, meeting point, the junction between the wild and the humans. Hmm? You have the wild animals and you have the humans. And then you have some animals and amongst them the cow is most notable and most um, helpful um, to the human society. Um, some, but amongst them the cow, the most that are, um, how you say, domesticatable. They get domesticate. So they're domestic animals. They're wild animals. And they're humans. So I look at the cows as domestic animals. Hmm? As this junction between the wild and uh, humanity. Between animality and humanity, which is spirituality in one sense. Between, if you've got three, animality, humanity, the third one is the spirituality. They very much facilitate that. So this kind of kindness, hmm, um, where the wild and the, and, the, and, the, and the humans meet, is a very special place. Hmm? And um, it's uh, not clear in human history, as it's understood today, um, who made the first move, the cows or the humans. Uh, so uh, it could have been the cows that domesticated the humans, but uh, uh, in other words, from, as it's thought today, hunting and gathering, hmm, um, humans became uh, agriculturalists. Hmm. So it's a different lifestyle, and it's, uh, it's, it requires more intelligence than hunting and gathering. It is a more intelligent uh, way of going about life in a kinder way also. Hmm? Um, and so this, uh, this uh, bringing the humans um, and the animals together Primarily, like I say, in the form of the cow, because the cow, obviously, the the, cow, the bull can be trained to till the, the fields, and the cow produces milk, and um, and in exchange for that, well, they're they're taken care of instead of left in the wild to fend for themselves and so forth. They're protected. They're taken care of, and um, and the bounty of human society is increased considerably. Hmm? I mean, you could kill an animal and eat it and maybe keep it for a while, but without refrigeration or anything, it would be uh, not keep you through the whole uh, year and so forth. But if you use the same animal, a bull, for example, to till the field and plant, you can grow and store and so on and so forth. And So, so this is... Uh, um, the cow is very special in this way for human society. Hmm? Um, 
I mean, they say, of course, that human society could not be sustained on an agrarian-based approach to life. We need an industrial approach um, to feed all the people. That's the modern idea. And so this kind of agrarian-based lifestyle and this relationship between the humans and the domestic animals and so forth has become strained, and the animals have suffered quite a bit from it, and humans, I believe, are suffering from it as well in terms of the the, con- the quality of the food that's produced uh, in the industrial uh, approach. And um, as far as requiring that to feed the number of people, um, there's not a need for that many people either. That's... Uh, I think the industrial society um, uh, uh, holds the childbirth to be very uh, sacred uh, and uh, perhaps to an extreme. And um, there's often not much more perhaps than a romantic kind of idea behind um, childbirth. Hmm. Want to have one? Let's have one. Feels good, you know, emotionally and so forth. I think in a times gone by, people might have been more practical about having kids or, or not having kids and, and so forth. Anyway, that's a big subject, but um, when we speak about a simpler life, like this and so forth, and take care of cows the way we do. People might complain that you can't do that everywhere. Hmm? But we also don't produce so many children here. So, um, that's a, uh, if you want to put no restrictions on that, everybody can have unlimited children, whatever they want, and so forth, then you, you're going to have problems. <laughs> Uh, and if you take it out on the animals and uh, and the earth through um, industrialization in terms of the food production and so forth, you might get more quantity. You could get problems, and and uh, there are plenty of thoughtful people who think that there are problems with such mass production of foods and so forth and so on. So we're getting a little astray, perhaps, but... Uh, uh, um, but overall, I think that, there, as I say, there's a place for domestic animals, and it's 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 rather kind of a sacred space. It re, it involves the human becoming kinder, using his intelligence, her intelligence, to become kinder and and practical. Hmm? Uh, the practical side, you know, as I say, better to do agriculture than than to hunt and gather and. And so on and so forth, and when you, and, and and then to be kind to the animal. The industrial pr- approach is again using intelligence, but the kindness is, seems to be in question in terms of the way they treat the animals, the domestic animals these days. It's quite shocking. So I look at it as this kind of this meeting place again between the humans and the cows, as being very um, sacred, and the Hindus looked at it in this way. As well, and they are, of course, uh, animals that require very little in comparison to what they um, they give, and 
they give, for example, in the form of milk, quite a bit more than the calf can drink. When this little gal comes out here in a couple of days or tonight, she won't be able to drink everything in that that udder that's uh, swelled up with affection in the form of liquid, white liquid milk, liquid religion, as it's sometimes thought of. Um, so there are other uses for um, human consumption and and from that making so many other products and so on and so forth. And Krishna is, uh, is another name is Gopal, protector of the cows, who are givers. So the implication is that those who give, you think, who will take care of them if you only give? The answer is, that's Krishna's position. That's what he does. He's always surrounded by cows. They're givers. They eat grass. And as I sometimes say, grass grows even in the concrete, in the streets. In San Jose, you can even find grass. It finds its way in the cracks and grows, and nobody planted it there. And so this is all the cows ask, is a field of grass, and for that, they give the milk. So they don't ask much, and in comparison, what they give is is, is considerable. Hmm? Um, I'm not a nutritionist, but there are people who believe that milk is like a, raw milk is a miracle food, and um, I believe him. Um, of course, some people say, well, you're the, humans are the only species that, you know, drink the milk of another animal, of another species. That's true, but we're the only species that grows food, too. <laughs> Should we stop doing that? Should we stop growing tomatoes? So, we are different, yeah. Um, and... Um, and we can have, as I say, a relationship with cows that's mutually um, supportive, and and it uh, it 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 really uh, is kind of a sacred space, as it's thought of um, by the Hindus. It's a it's a as again it's it it requires that humans become a little more tender and and. Uh, and uh, and the cows, we see practically that when they're dealt with affectionately and protected and taken care of, then they they respond hmm, accordingly. So it's a, it's a very nice um, idea, a very nice kind of uh, meditation. It's very central to Hinduism, and and Krishna, of course, is is the the heart of the whole Hindu world, hmm, the heartbeat the love life of the Absolute, and uh, his place is called Golok, planet of cows. It's uh, it's talked about in terms of being like surrounded by an ocean of milk. Milk represents affection, hmm. cow's affection for the, for the calf and so forth. So it's a very uh, affectionate place. Hmm? Cows are thought to be very pure, also, um, um, and the extreme example of that: all the parts of the body are thought to be pure except the mouth, hmm? which is pretty nice too. But because um, uh, they're always, I guess, eating on something. Um, but uh, 
but all the parts of the body uh, are thought to be um, pure, and and they um, uh, in Hindu world they represent different gods and goddesses. Sometimes in Hindu, Hindu iconography and graphics, they have the picture of the cow, and, and there's the different all the different parts, all the different gods and goddesses are, correspond with them. Um, and so the purity of the cow, um, in the extreme example, there, there, there are, uh, is of course the, 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 the urine of the cow and the dung of the cow, which would you, you would think would be the most um, um, impure, um, have pure um, uh, uh, qualities to them to the extent that they're used even in the worship. So that's quite peculiar. Um, and it's very practical. I mean, I've seen houses made out of cow dung, mm, cow dung patties, and it, they keep the flies away. Mm, and they keep it cool, of course, in the summer and warm in the winter. It's said that the cow dung has antiseptic qualities also. Uh, for, and they use it in healing and so forth. And so in the Ayurveda, the life science of India, these, um, what would be, you think would be the most pure um, from the cow, the uh, most impure are also pure. So to speak of the rest is the point. So that's very peculiar amongst all the species. We, we can't make the same claim about ourselves. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, there are very kind of pragmatic uh, reasons for this central place of cows in Hinduism. Hinduism. It's very misunderstood by the Western world. They think, think, well, you know, no wonder they're hungry. You know, they worship cows instead of God. Hmm. I quoted the other day, somebody told me that Sarah Palin, who was a a uh, vice presidential candidate for the United States, recently said about vegetarians that if God wanted people, if God did not want people to eat animals, why did he make them out of meat? So, fortunately, she wasn't elected a few years back, but... <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's maybe an extreme, but uh, um, there's a lot more wisdom into the idea of the uh, sacred cow. Indeed, um, I wrote an article on it once uh, with considerable research and turned the tables in the article is such that I, I made it appear that that the sacred cow of the West was this industrialization. Hmm. And because um, there was an attempt to industrialize in Indian villages and so forth, and and there were a lot of problems with it, and uh, things backfired in so many ways, and, and so on and so forth. So, um, but in India, anyway, the cow is really... Uh, uh, Sacred and uh, in, 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 in in many respects, and in a very practical 
way. Cows will sometimes sleep in the house with people. Hmm? And in, especially in the winter, it's nice because it keeps keeps warm. Hmm? They bring heat in. Hmm? Um, you can find that in the other places in the Orient, too. I think in China and Japan, have the farmers who have the ox and the cows sleep in the house. I mean, this is in the rural areas and so forth. Uh, so anyway, they're part of the part of the family, if you will, and um, and again, the Vedas uh, make much of them. Uh, the, the Vedic mantras are said to be cows. Hmm. All the Vedic mantras are said to be. They have, in other words, they, they manifest as cows in the subjective, meditative world. Hmm. So uh, it's a, a very central. And uh, for very good, good, good reasons, and to meditate on these ideas and put them in practice and so forth, affords experience and insight into this kind of hidden uh, mystery hmm? um, uh, about life and the natural world and how it works and how it will proceed in such a way to be the most bountiful materially and spiritually. And uh, by contrast, the modern society is very abusive to the cow, obviously. And um, indeed it's said, uh, I believe, uh, in the Bhagavatam or maybe in the commentary, maybe in Prabhupada's commentary, that the sages of Naimisharanya, when they heard hmm, that the cow would be abused in the future, in Kali Yuga, they couldn't, they couldn't compute it. They couldn't, it was like if you said to somebody, in the future, uh, the second child of every person will be eaten for dinner. People go, what? How could it possibly? So that's how they thought the cows will be treated like this or eaten. They, just, they couldn't compute it. They couldn't relate to the idea. So we've come far from, from there. And, um, and, you know, you could make a very um, good um, study of it and tie, I believe, many modern problems to the abuse of the cow. I mean, for example, um, the, the thing that looms very large in, in, in my mind when I say that is the entire environmental crisis because there's, there's no one thing in the world, one practice in the world that contributes more to the um, climate change, global warming scenario, and so forth, than um, the way in which uh, the the, uh, the agricultural industry treats cows. In fact, if you take all of the other contributing factors and you put them together, they will not equal by even come close to the amount of um, what is it? Um, like the environmental stain, I think. So. I don't know. Something putting something into the environment that that um, carbon. carbon whatever yeah uh, from 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 animal agriculture hmm? and 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 
it's not talked about at all. A few vegans talk about it, but but all, all of the major environmental, um, um, how you say, uh, organizations hmm, dedicated to um, protecting, improving the environment, and so forth. They have they have uh, nothing to say about that in any of their propaganda. It's completely ignored. Hmm? And that one thing would stop. If you would stop, for example, what I'm saying is if you stopped slaughtering cows and eating meat, hmm, you would by far do more to improve the, um, the uh, environment and by everything else that's being proposed and pushed and lobbied for and so forth, put together. Such a simple thing. Hmm? And not only are, I would say, even the any of the environmental organizations, even making that part of their propaganda, hmm? when reminded of or informed about it, some of them don't even know it. And those that do say, well, yeah, you know, but anyway, I mean, you got to eat. I mean, you know, something like that. So it's quite shocking. And so, there, as I say, this is an example of the fact that there's a case to be made for the, for the um, that, that the abuse of the cow is um, is uh, the source of many many problems for human society. That's just one example. It's but it's a you know it's a it's an apocalyptic type of you know scenario. The environmental um, crisis that the, the whole the whole world could be destroyed. Um, by rising temperature and so on and so forth. And all you have to do is stop, stop eating meat. Hmm. Stop slaughtering the cows. So, um, and they're complaining, of course Indian people are hungry, they don't kill their cows. Hmm. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's just giving a modern example. You take these what might look like quaint and old and superstitious ideas from some previous um, time gone by about cows, but here it plays out very practically in the modern world, which is confronted by a huge, huge problem. And you could do everything. You could run SUVs and and uh, everything else hmm? just stop slaughtering the cows and the environmental crisis would be over hmm? so then it's shocking to think that people would re- would resist that as well especially when you highlight the, the treatment involved in it and so forth so it's a very practical thing um, and uh, when you when you look at it like this, very practically and so forth, and you see the ramifications, implications of it, then maybe you become a little more sympathetic to some of the other more esoteric ideas um, about the cow. 
and 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 the and the idea of the god of the humans being a protector of cows becomes um, less kind of mythological and fantastic and imaginary and so forth perhaps than, than some people think. Does that help? Yeah. So here we have a small example of we take care of the cows, we have a sustainable herd, we've got nice nice bulls and everybody living happily. What else? Yes. After Sunday talk, you uh, spoke a little bit uh, how there are uh, Siddhantas for particular uh, paths. So could you elaborate on it, maybe? Siddhantas for different paths? Yeah, how Siddhantas for different paths. Well, let's take, for example, different go different Vaishnava Sampradayas. Okay. The different Vaishnava Sampradayas are like channels in the world to uh, the uh, attainment of particular uh, spiritual experiences. In a very uh, basic sense, they're channels to majestic love of God or intimate love of God. And within that, there are nuances as well. Hmm? Um, you don't go to the Ramanuja Sampradaya hmm, to attain um, Vatsalya Rasa hmm, or Madhurya Rasa or Sakya Rasa. Similarly, um, Gaudiya Sampradaya has its specialties and its particular um, possibilities of spiritual attainment in the Bark Sampradaya, this uh, Balb Sampradaya, and so on and so forth. Hmm? So they have their ideals. And that's an interesting point in itself because it tells us that the possibility to attain those ideals comes through Sadhusanga and Guru Parampara. They make those ideals available. So it's good to be familiar with what your particular lineage is making available. I often refer to it as like a window of opportunity. What are the windows of opportunity that the Sampradaya offers? Hmm? And then along with that, they, they show the way hmm, to attain it. So it's not just... Any sampradaya, they're all Vaishnava sampradaya, they all teach bhakti, join anyone and go wherever you want. Hmm? I just join and um, got my initiation from so someone in the uh, Madhva sampradaya, and so now I've decided that uh, I want to be a gopi, and so here we go. Hmm? It doesn't work like that. So each sampradaya is uh, presenting a particular opportunity hmm? and so we, we should become aware of that hmm? and understand then that the opportunity comes from the parampara, from the sadhu sangha, comes from up to down it's not that we just decide, pick and choose and so forth, but we've been chosen hmm? 
And so we take advantage of that opportunity. Now that said, while each lineage has a particular bhava or ideal, hmm, then they have a way of talking about it hmm, in philosophical language. Hmm. And so they have tattva or siddhanta. And so in the Siddhanta, then they, they look at all the different issues and they answer all the questions. And so each Sampradaya answers all the questions that you can come up with, but they have different answers in different cases and so forth. And for example, the Ramanuja Sampradaya teaches Vishishta Dvaita. The Gaudiya Sampradaya teaches Achintya Beta Beta. Madhva Sampradaya teaches Dvaita. Balabha hmm. uh, Sampradaya teaches Shuddha Dvaita, Nimbarka Dvaita Dvaita, and so forth. These are all tattvas, these are all siddhanta. Hmm. A way of talking about everything hmm, in such a way that it, that it supports the attaining of a particular ideal. Hmm. So all those are all different siddhantas, do you understand? The Siddhanta of Vashishta Dvaita is different. So they will interpret verses differently from the Bhagavatam, for example. Hmm? They have different books. Vashishta Dvaita's main book is the Vishnu Purana, not the Bhagavatam. The Balabha's main book is the Bhagavat Purana. Ours is the Bhagavat Purana. They have different books that they focus amongst the sacred texts that they focus on. They have different interpretations. There are things in common as well, also. Hmm? They're all Vaishnava Sampradayas. They're all about bhakti. How the Ramanuja Sampradaya will talk about jnana and karma is different than the way we will talk about them. Hmm? Um, so these are all different siddhantas. But, they, in, in philosophy, tattva is, as I was saying the other day, it's a relative thing. Because it's an attempt to talk about and a reason about something that transcends reason and, and, and language. Hmm? But still, we try, you know, we want to put it into reason and language so that people could get some handle on it because that's what they speak. Hmm? They speak a language and, uh, and, uh, and, and hopefully they're, they're, they're reasonable. Hmm? Um, so the attempt is to try to talk about that, and, um, but it's limited. And so... There's relativity, my point was the other day, to the Siddhanta. Hmm? Um, at the same time, the Siddhanta supports the particular ideal. So, hmm, if you're pursuing that ideal, then it's certainly in your interest to know the tattva that underlies it. Hmm? And... Uh, and so on. I mean, the Radha, Krishna, Pranay, Vaktilidani, Lutini, Shakti, Rasmada, you know, the Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, you have to understand the Chintibeta Beta to, to have a Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So, um, so it's important for us to learn Sampradaya, or the, the, the Tattva, but we see other Siddhantas in other Sampradayas, and we also see that they produce a result that's transcendental. Baikuntha, for example, the Balabha Sampradaya, they seem to focus on a 
Vatsalya Bhava hmm? and some other type of Gopi Bhava, hmm? different from the Gaudiya Sampradaya. So th- these are extraordinary ideals and so forth and uh, certainly worthy of attainment and and they're, so they're reasoned about, talked about from Scripture. They're ideals, they're showing the ideal from the Scripture and the Scripture is like a jewel so it has different facets and can be interpreted in different ways and so forth and then there are ways that it can't be interpreted. Hmm? That's where, for example, we depart where at the Vaishnava Sampradayas there's Five of them, I guess, if you want to include us as four and a half or something, because we come from the Madhva Sampradaya, but we're different at the same time. So uh, where we would say, oh, that's wrong, uh, rather than that's different and it's okay, would be, say, for example, in the Dvaita Vedanta. We do not accept another Vaishnava Sampradaya except the interpretation of the scripture that um, renders the jiva illusion, part of the illusion, the individual jiva. So in the Advaita, there's no other, no difference. So the jiva is Brahman. So the jiva is God. It's the, the idea that it's a jiva, it's his illusion, how God gets an illusion like that. I'm not sure <laughs> what they say, but that that we don't accept that none of the Vaishnavas accept that. So all the four Vaishnava sampradayas, they they differ with Advaita Vedanta in a substantial way. They differ from one another in ways that are in a sense insubstantial, because they also acknowledge those ways are valid and they speak about a valid reality. The jivas dynamic union with God in love, in Dasiras and Shantaras, for example. Hmm. Um, so there are, it's like I said, it's a valuable jewel and you can look at it from different angles and so on and so forth. Um, but that doesn't mean you could just make it say whatever you want and and that, and um, and we'll, we'll accept it. They said even the devil, you know, quotes the scripture very well. So that said, I mean, Shankar is a very extraordinary person. So you'd have to say, well, you know, look at his character, so on and so forth. And therefore, how can you deny his interpretations and so forth and so on? Well, you know, we look closely at him and we, we see, oh, he's actually a devotee. He says it here, he says it here. This is the Vaishnava uh, perspective. And they have their, their, their reasoning as to what his position is and so forth, which is glorious and, and so on. But the particular interpretation, that is, that there's no jiva, for example, that's just one aspect of it. But there's no world either. There is no world. And there's no jiva, only Brahman. Just some pulsating awareness. Contentless, as I said, contentless awareness. Whatever that is, it's compared to deep sleep. So, our suggestion to the Mayavadis is take rest. We'll talk, you take rest. That's your teaching. You go to sleep, we'll, we will talk. You. Talking is duality. Hmm. So, you'll be quiet. Take rest.
take prashad, be quiet, take rest. In the Vaishnavas will speak. <laughs> Something like that. So help? Yeah. What else? Yes. Uh, I've been reading Javadharma, and I was just wondering, like, what, what was the context of, like, when he wrote it, what was, what was the preaching strategies he was using and stuff, and, like, how should I approach the book when I'm reading it? Well, I think that Bhaktivinoda thought to write about the teachings of the Goswamis as they're presented in, in Satsandarbha, hmm? and in Rupa Goswami's teaching in Ujbal Nilmani. Hmm? And he had these uh, two great works in mind, and he um, explained them in a the format of a... Uh, uh, story, kind of a novel. Hmm? And he has principal characters that carry through the book, hmm? and which makes the reading very um, friendly. And and each chapter begins with you know, the, 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 the main uh, characters and their going on in the brief. Hmm? And then they ask questions, they meet sadhus, and they get the answers. And so it's a very uh, friendly uh, format. Satsandarbha, the six treaties of Jiva Goswami, are very, uh, they're all in Sanskrit prose and very terse, and it's highly, highly philosophical. Um, so difficult for the common person to penetrate. Hmm? And Ujbal Nilmani, the work of Rupa Goswami about Madhuhirasa, is very uh, difficult to understand as well. So he tried to to present them both in that book um, in a more kind of user-friendly way. Hmm? And um, it's not something that's unprecedented. Hmm? It's novel, but it's not. And it is a novel, but it's not. Uh, and I say that because the first book of our Sampradaya, the seminal book of Sanatana Goswami's Brihat Bhagavatamrita, has a similar format. Hmm? And there he seeks to tell the whole essence of the Bhagavatam, which is a long book and not easy to figure out. Hmm? Um, and so to extract the essence of it, and explain it in a. It's a very compelling to hear that you know Gopu Kumar, for example, the second part. The first part of that book is about the different types of devotion and what bhakti culminates in. Hmm? The second part of the book is where is the place that corresponds with that love, that highest love. Hmm? So the first part takes you through different devotees hmm? and their love, and they talk about their love and about those who they, whom they hold in regard and above them and so forth. And the second part, part of the book is all about the place of the highest love. And it, to get there, you go through all the different religious possibilities. So it's very much speaks about how the, the Bhagavatam is a book of comparative religion. Hmm? It shows us the book, it, it, it shows cases, different religious ideas, conceptions, hmm? and what the value of the moral, and then what, what is... Uttam Bhakti as well, and Uttam Bhakti of the Rag type, and it, le- it, it the conclusion is, well, this is, this is the best. Hmm? 
but people might not get it. So books like Bhagavad Bhagavatamrita, they, they bring it out, and they bring it out in a very user-friendly way. Um, even today, devotees love to read it. And, 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 and you know, so you, you, there are some very terse or very philosophical sections, but, you know, they're in the middle of Gopu Kumar is just attained by Kuntha, you know, and, and there's a debate going on there or something, you know, about the Shastras and which ones are, you know, more important than others. Is Gyan more superior to Bhakti or not? It's a very um, philosophical argument, but it's presented in a way that's very user-friendly. So that precedent, I think, that Bhakti Thakur, uh followed that in his work, the Jaiva Dharma. Now I'm talking about these books as um, literary um, devices to share the teachings. Hmm? Obviously, um, some people like to think of them differently. Um, they can if they like, um, and there's no harm. Hmm? Um, for example, they take exception to the idea that, that the Brihad Bhagavatamrita is a literary device, say, conceived by Sanatana Goswami, who himself didn't say that. Hmm? <laughs> Sanatana Goswami says his book is from such and such a period, and so, but there's no record of any such book. Hmm? Another edition of the Mahabharata or something like that. or hmm? Prikshit talking to his mother, and and so on. And then he writes his own commentary on it. But the Sampradaya more or less accepts it. Sanatana Goswami, he wrote the Brihat Bhagavatam, it is his book, and he wrote his own commentary on it. Hmm? And, uh, but does that mean that Gopu Kumar is not a real person? And this didn't, you know, well, what about the people in the Jaiva Dharma? Are they not real? Are they just fiction? Is that what you're saying? You know, you can harmonize it however you like. Sridhar Maharaj once said, the fiction of Bhakti Vinod is more real than the real of other people. Hmm. Whatever is in the mind of Bhakti Vinod or Sanatana Goswami, that's real. Hmm. And so it has its, so, something like that. So if they have a literary device that they come up with to present the philosophy like this, you can also say it takes on an ontological, you know, uh, reality that can be you can you might want to meet Gopakumar or Sarup when you go to Golok and he'll be there they can be sure um, so Jaiva Dharma follows that kind of uh, example and I think that Bhakti Vinod was very much um, very much enthusiasm for sharing the teachings, taking high teachings and bringing them down and making them available to people. He saw in his time that in Bengal many people were followers of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and they didn't know what it means to follow Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. There were all types of distorted ideas that had even given Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's teaching a bad name. And he himself um, was brought up with uh, an, an aversion to the Bhagavatam. Hmm? because of how it had been uh, misrepresented. And then when he understood it in light of the Chaitanya Charitamrita and the work of Krishna's Kaviraj, you know, he, he became a, a Bhagavata himself, a devotee. Hmm? 
And so he was very much concerned that the people in Bengal would get the sambandhagyan, the proper knowledge of what the teachings are, so that their practices would have meaning, value, and bear fruits. Hmm? And he saw people chanted, went to temples, they said, we jai, sachinandan, but they weren't getting the fruits. So he's very committed to the idea that they needed the teaching. Hmm? You can go and tell the stories of the Leela and the temple and so on and so forth. And people like it. And it's a night of entertainment for some people. Hmm? Without understanding the philosophical implications of them that you can apply in your life and so forth. Uh, he, What his experience was is that, that people weren't um, were making the kind of progress they could. So he very much was uh, convinced that you needed a substantial investment uh, injection of Sambandagyan to help orient you such that your practice of chanting will be um, uh, fruitful. That's his whole emphasis on siksha. Hmm. He saw people were giving diksha and then they, they didn't give any siksha or they didn't have any siksha. There were a lot of confusion out there. So this is his emphasis on siksha. And he wrote books for that reason. So many books he wrote. And and so, and he put them like this one, in Javadam, in a very friendly form. He did his, wrote many books of songs, which is a friendly way. Uh, uh, you know, his, a lot of his songs are very instructive. He has songs about Saranagati. Hmm? Songs representing the six arms of Saranagati, for example. Uh, so he was... Uh, uh, Jayavadharma is another, you know, example of that. Using his in intellect so forth, to come up with novel, to use Prabhupada's language, novel ways of presenting the teachings to the general people. Hmm? Does that help? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 There are also some places in Jayavadharma where he he presents some ideas that are preaching strategies, like the when he deals with the nadi, nadi karma, and when he deals with the the, 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 uh, uh, the constitution of the jiva and whether there's there's love of God in the jiva. So those are two things that he talks about in ways that are somewhat different from. The, Orthodox teaching for different reasons, but but both of which constitute some type of preaching strategy. Hmm. As far as the the origins of the jiva and nadi karma, he talked about it in a way that would be more emphasis on free will, and that might be more user friendly for Western people who deal with the argument of how there could be evil in the world and suffering if there's a good God. They deal with it by way of emphasizing free will, so he took that approach. And then, with regard to the idea that there's love of God in, inherent in the jiva, he, he, he talked about that in a way as to, so as to, I think, turn people away from these peddlers of sarups. You had to come to us and pay a fee, and we'll give you a sarup. And, and, there was some, so the Nityanandavams apparently was very, had some very um, 
some cases of poor representation that seemed to stand out in his mind. So, and that of Bhakti Siddhanta. So, yeah, don't go there. It's just chant; it'll come out. It's, it's within you, something like that. So, of course, I've talked about that. So, other than that, hmm, everything's good there. Hmm. That's good too, but it means it's, you have to understand it properly. The last section is from again is Ujbal Nimani, and it's 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 um, an overview, but it's it's suitable for those who have uh, adhikar for Madhurya Rasa. Hmm. That's what it's emphasized on. It's therefore emphasizes there. That's what the book's about. The first two chapters deal a little bit with Sakya Rasa and the extent to which Sakya Rasa is involved with Madhurya Rasa. And so in the in the book, at a certain point, uh, Brajanath and Bijai Kumar are the two main characters. Brajanath is a Sakha. He follows Subal. Hmm. So he drops out because the teaching is about Madhurya Rasa in detail. So it's, it's not of concern for him. So, what's the time? Oh, we have quite a warm night, huh? Mm-hmm. I'll see if we have a calf tonight. She, she, Dauji, go, Paul, Kijai. Kaur Bhaktabhinda Kijai. Kaur Premanandi.